this morning, our scripture reading comes from John chapter 4. And if you have your Bible with you this morning, would you turn please to John chapter 4 as we read together verses 43 through 54. You'll find it on page 1653 of the church Bible. Page 1653, John chapter 4. Most of you are aware that Sunday by Sunday during these months of January, February, March, in fact, all the way to Easter Sunday, we're spending our Sunday morning studying together John's Gospel. So today, we're in chapter 4. After the two days, he left for Galilee. Now, Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, for they also had been there. Once more, he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When the man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, He went to him and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. Unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus replied, you may go, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that the boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when he got better, they said to him, the fever left him yesterday at the seventh hour. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he and all his household believed. This was the second miraculous sign that Jesus performed having come from Judea to Galilee. Amen, and we trust that God will bless to us this reading from his holy word. About 11 or 12 years ago, the article I'm about to read to you appeared in the Washington Post. It begins like this. Joshua Bell, a famous musician, had made his Carnegie Hall debut in 1985 at age 17. And since then, he has performed with many of the world's major orchestras and conductors. And back in 2007, Bell positioned himself next to a trash basket. By most matters, he was a nondescript, youngish man in jeans, a long-sleeved t-shirt, and a Washington Nationals baseball cap from a small case. He removed a violin. Placing the open case at his feet, he shrewdly threw in a few dollars and a pocket full of change as seed money, and he began to play. For the next 45 minutes, in the D.C. Metro, on January the 12th, 2007, Bell played Mozart and Schubert as over 1,000 people streamed by. Most hardly took notice. If they paid attention, they might just have recognized the young man for the world-renowned violinist he is. They also might have noted that the violin he played was a rare Stradivarius worth over $3 million, 
And it was all part of a series of articles arranged by the Washington Post, which looked at, quotation marks, an experiment in context perception and priorities, as well as an unblinking assessment of public taste in a banal setting at an inconvenient time would transcendency triumph. Three days earlier, Joshua Bell sold out the Boston Symphony Hall with ordinary seats going for $100. And in the subway that morning, Bell gathered little more than $32 from 27 people who stopped long enough to make a donation. Isn't that a wonderful article? Because here were people in the D.C. metro rushing to work, maybe texting each other, checking emails as they came up from the metro line. And one of the world's great violinists, Anna Stradivarius, was playing right there. And they didn't realize what was happening, and they didn't pause long enough to appreciate what was actually taking place. Now sometimes on a Sunday morning, When we open up the scriptures together, we find ourselves entering into a sacred moment. Because when we gather on Sunday, we gather with one purpose in mind. And it is to spend this time in the presence of the living God. It is to engage with him through prayer. It is to come to him in worship and adoration and allow our hearts and minds and souls to soar heavenwards. It's during this time we open up the scriptures and pray that he would speak to us from his word. That his word would speak into our lives. That passages of scripture would equip us and resource us to live out our faith day by day in the week ahead. And in order to do so, there are times when we need to take a deep breath and rest and give our undivided attention to him in order to appreciate all that he would say to us. The passage in front of us is a fascinating passage. It is utterly compelling. It is a passage of scripture we don't often focus on, but today we're going to immerse ourselves in it prayerfully and say, Father, speak to us. As we come to this passage in those opening verses, you discover that Galilee and Galilean is mentioned three times. You also discover Cana of Galilee is mentioned. Judea is Mentioned, Sea of Galilee is right there. Capernaum is also mentioned. So let me help you visualize geographically where all of this is taking place. And the best way I could come up with this past week when I was preparing was to ask you to imagine in your own mind a map of South Carolina. And let's start right down in the bottom. You have Charleston. Somewhere in the middle, Columbia. And here in the upstate, we have Greenville, Spartanburg, Anderson, and so on. Now compare that map with the first century, where you had the hill country of Judea 
Judea, the region down in the south, think Charleston. Bethlehem, Jerusalem are in Judea in the south. Come up into the middle, you have Columbia, a map of first century, you would have Samaria. And as you come to the upstate, in ancient Israel, you come to Cana of Galilee, 20 miles southwest of Capernaum, one of the largest towns in the north, adjacent to the Sea of Galilee. So all of this unfolds first in Capernaum, but mainly in Canaan, in the upstate. And the reason that John includes this miracle is that he also wants you to understand what's been happening since chapter 2. Notice what he says right here. Verse 46. Once more he visited Cana in Galilee. And then he adds, where he turned water into wine. Now in John's gospel, if John adds what could be considered extraneous material, he's doing it for a reason. And the question is, why does he mention the first miracle of Jesus, which happened several weeks earlier? Why is he drawing your attention to it again? Why is it significant? Well, you're about to find out as the passage unfolds, but hold that at the forefront of your mind. A miracle had already taken place in Cana of Galilee. And then John moves us from Cana to Capernaum. And we read there was a certain royal official whose sons lay sick at Capernaum. And when this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. Now let me pause for a second and encourage you to use your mind. If you have experienced or know someone who has lost a child, you will know that that is an absolutely overwhelmingly difficult experience. It comes with incredible anguish, grief, a sense of bereavement, not just the overwhelming sadness of losing a child, but losing a life and losing a future and losing years together and all that would have blossomed from that young life. And folks who go through such an experience tend never to get over it. What they manage to do is learn to cope in the midst of it. And so here is a dad whose son is dying. Now come on over to Capernaum with me. And in your imagination, think of the conversation when this royal official, who probably worked for Herod Antipas, who ruled Galilee in those days for Rome, he was the Jewish leader. And here is a dad who had heard yesterday his son wasn't feeling so well, and then he got on with the rest of his business, and eventually, at least in my mind, I'm imagining that his wife came to him and said, our son is not doing well. Remember yesterday when he had a bit of a fever and we thought if we looked after Jacob and kept him warm and gave him some chicken soup, the fever would break and he would be fine because young men always bounce back. And then she says, but actually, he's not bouncing back. The doctor's been in twice. He doesn't know what to do. We are out of options and he's dying. 
Can you imagine how that's going to impact a dad? Hold that in your mind and let me bring you over here and talk about what it means to be a dad for a second. Dads are outstanding at two things. Number one, we are absolutely wonderful at being grumpy most of the time. We just excel at being grumpy. It comes very naturally to us. The other thing we like to be is this. Dads know an awful lot about almost nothing. That's just their nature. That's what we do. We read things. We learn things. And we pretend to, with our children that we know all sorts of things and usually not too much. So that's dads. But to be serious for a second... Dads like to get to the bottom line. In other words, we like to know what the issue is and then we seek to step forward and deal with the issue. We like to somehow fix things. That's what dads do. We fix things. And here is this dad being told his son is dying. Doctors can do nothing. And there is no hope. And then he hears from someone else that this man, Jesus, is in the area. Cana, 20 miles southwest. When he was in Cana, some time back, he performed a miracle at a wedding. When he was up in Jerusalem at the Passover, not so long ago, he cleansed the temple. You'll find it in chapter 2, right after the miracle of Cana. And not only did he cleanse the temple, he preached regularly and hundreds and thousands of people came to hear him. And in fact, he was known as a miracle worker. And as this royal official, this dad, grieving over the situation his son finds himself in, he thinks, the only thing I can do, the only option I have left, is to go to this Jesus. Now, 20 miles in those days would probably mean a day and a half's journey. And he sets off for Cana. And when he gets there, he sees Jesus and he explains. Notice what the passage says. It said, verse 47, when the man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. Notice the language, begged him. Now let me ask, have you begun to wonder what went through that man's mind as he traveled those 20 miles? I suspect during those 20 miles, he prayed, not just once, not just twice, but probably for the entire journey. And he may have prayed, Lord, help me. I'm desperate. I know I've not been the man I should have been. I know that we don't get to the synagogue as regularly as we might. I know there have been times in the past when I've been closer to you and I've walked closely with you, but over the last few years, I've just got busy, my schedule's got tighter and tighter, and I've kind of wandered a little. But I promise you this, if you heal my son, I will do anything. 
I will give my life to you afresh. I will put prayer into my daily schedule. I will go to worship week by week. I promise that if you heal him, our entire family will change. Have you ever bargained with God? Ever gone to him prayerfully longing that he would answer your prayer? Promising him you would do anything, go anywhere, pay any price. If only he would do this. Do you imagine that is what was going through the man's mind? I suspect it was. I suspect the more desperate he became, there is every possibility he prayed the way that any parent would pray. And he may well have said, Lord, Take me. Spare him. Take me in his place. Any parent would do that in a heartbeat. Now let's leave the royal official in Cana of Galilee and come on into the 21st century. And let's try and get our head around what happens when we pray for a moment. Sometimes I'll find myself reading a Christian devotional book or a Bible study book. Or I'll be in reading a very popular Christian magazine and there will be a heading relating to prayer. And the heading might be this. How to pray so God will listen. How to pray so God will listen. How to pray so God sees things from your perspective. How to pray so your voice will be heard in heaven. Those are some of the kind of headings or subheadings you'll see. Sometimes we're tempted to see prayer in a similar basis of filling out an application for a job we really, really, really want. And if we go online, sometimes we'll download it, sometimes we'll print it off, and we think to ourselves, now, how do I fill in this first line? How do I fill in the details thereafter, how do I present myself in the most appealing, most attractive, most engaging way to a future employer? How do I do that? And sometimes we're tempted to see prayer like that. How can I use prayer as some kind of lever to get God to hear what I want? How can I get him to see things from my perspective? How can I pray so he will listen? And sometimes we're tempted to pray just like that. Please hear me when I say this. God is not hard of hearing. He hears Extremely well. Do we need to pray in such a manner as we leverage our prayers so he will listen? Or is he listening already? Of course he's listening already. And I understand what people mean when they say those kind of things. But please understand this. Prayer isn't a mechanism for getting God to do what we want or seeing things from our perspective. Prayer is predicated on a relationship. And we said it not 12 minutes ago. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. 
Her Father. Her Father who's deeply in love with us, who delights when we, metaphorically speaking, climb up into his lap and we rest there, pouring out heart, mind, soul. We don't need somehow to manipulate him. We don't need somehow to coerce him. We don't need him to understand things from our perspective because he absolutely and utterly already knows our perspective. He knows our every thought, our every desire, our every motivation. All of it he knows. But it's predicated on relationship. And when we unburden our soul to him, that's when he wraps us in his arms of love and grace. And when we find ourselves there, what you discover is your heart is softened. Your attitude is changed. You delight in simply being in his presence. And when you are there, then your prayer becomes, Thy will be done. Because it's a good and pleasing and perfect will. We don't need to force it. We don't need to leverage it. What we need to do is spend time immersed in his presence and then let him change us. How often have we been in a situation and prayed and prayed and prayed and it's not the circumstances that change, but we are the ones who change and we fall in line with his will. Now, having said all of that, let's go back to Cana in Galilee, where the royal official says, my son is dying. The language John uses is, he begged him to come. My son is close to death. And then notice that incredibly surprising response from Jesus. Not only is it surprising, it's almost brusque. He's almost dismissing him. And he responds, unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, you will never believe. Now, isn't that strange? But here's what I think is taking place here. And from time to time, you see this in the Gospels, especially connected to miracles. When someone comes to Jesus, asks him to help, he almost challenges them before he responds to what they need. And this man is no different. And he's almost saying to him, do you really need to see the miraculous before you can trust me? That's what's going on here. And then Jesus responds with great empathy and sympathy and says to him, You may go. Your son will live. Now, how do you think the man felt right at that instant? Was he tempted to say, excuse me, is that it? (laughs) Is that it? Is there there not something I should do? Is is that it? Is Is that all? But I don't think that happens at all. Because this man understood 
in a deep, profound and personal way that God was at work. And when Jesus spoke at a level that was so deep, so profound, so miraculous, he spoke with the power and regenerative and creative, miraculous power of God. That's what was going on. Because he was very God of very God. True light of true light. He was there when the world was created. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And with all of the creative system, Staining power of God. He brings new life, not in the man, but in the sun 20 miles away. Although it's pretty clear, Dad changed as well. Why do we know it's clear? Because the passage tells us. Notice what it says. Verse 50, Jesus replied, you may go, your son will live. And then we read those seven wonderful words. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. That's real faith. That's authentic, living, trusting, spectacular, wonderful faith. Right there. And he didn't have to leverage anything from Jesus. He didn't have to approach him in the right manner. He didn't have to in any way be artificial. All he did was open up his heart and pleaded to God for a response. And notice what comes next, of course. While he was still on his way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. And when he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, the fever left him yesterday at the seventh hour. Now let's pause for a second. How do we wrap all this up this morning and apply it to our own lives? Earlier in the year, first or second week in January, we gave out some bookmarks which go hand in glove with this series on John. And on one side you'll see a list of Sundays for January, February, March, right up to Easter Sunday. And next to it you have a passage of Scripture. And the idea behind that is this, that if you don't have a daily Bible study plan of any kind, take this bookmark, live in the passage that's coming up the following Sunday, all that week, immerse yourself in it, prayerfully read it, engage with it, and don't be surprised if God begins to speak to from that passage into your situation, the challenges you face, the circumstance of your life. Christians since the first century have been experiencing that. And on the back, we listed seven questions for a new year. And one of those questions is apropos to our passage this morning. And question number four is, what is the most humanly impossible request that I will ask of God this year? And I think if you asked the dad in this passage, what was his most humanly speaking impossible request, I think he would tell you about the cleansing and the renewal and the healing of his son and also 
how his entire family came to faith. I think that's how he would respond. And I think he'd also say this. I think he would say, at the point of my greatest need, I discovered that Jesus was sufficient for my every need. Let me say it again. I think he would say, at the point of my greatest need, I discovered Jesus was sufficient for my every need. So let me ask you, married over the last 18 months or two years, thinking of starting a family, he is sufficient. Uncertain about which college or postgraduate study course to take up, he is sufficient. Praying for your children and your grandchildren, he is sufficient. Thinking of moving house, taking on a big mortgage, you're uncertain. Speak to your broker, then remember, he is sufficient. I don't want you going out and saying, the pastor said it's okay if I take on a $2 million mortgage. He gives us capacity to think and pray. He is sufficient. Parents, grandparents, spouse, is showing early signs of memory loss and dementia. He is Sufficient for our every need. Secondly, prayer is not primarily about approaching God in a particular manner. It's not primarily about forcing and leveraging Him to do what you want. Prayer is predicated on a relationship with Him where you can absolutely trust Him to say, thy will be done. And finally, if you do have family, children, grandchildren, great-grands, whom you only ever get to see twice a year, they don't live locally, you'd love to see them more, you'd love to be more active in their lives, and you can't because of distance and separation Please understand this, that when the royal official was praying for his son, Jesus had never met his son. He didn't know his wife. He didn't know his family. But he absolutely and utterly answered the prayer that benefited someone who was a long way away. You may not see them as often as you would like. But prayer will make an enormous difference because He is sufficient for your every need. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for this passage of Scripture today. Thank You for all that it teaches us. And enable us, please, this week as we seek to apply it and live out our faith to remember that we can trust you entirely because you are indeed sufficient for our every need. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.